This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's Q&As. It's Thursday morning, so there should be enough time for everybody to have gotten their questions in. But if not, as always, just ask in next week's Q&A post. So, this video that you're watching right now, and I'll get to the question as soon as I can. But anyway, let's jump in and see what we got. Scotter140 said they started playing Earthbound on their FX Pack Pro a little while ago, but the save file stopped working. They haven't had any issues with saves on their other games, and they popped their SD card in the computer, and the file is still there, but doesn't show up in-game. So the first thing I'm thinking of is the FX Pack Pro, as well as a bunch of other ROM carts, require you to hold reset and go back to the menu or trigger the in-game menu with your controller. But either way, you have to go back to the menu for your save file to be saved and your game to be updated. So if, for example, you played A Link to the Past, right? And uh, you started the game, it creates the save file, and then you get, you know, an hour into it, and then you just turn off your Super Nintendo, the save file won't save your game. So the file itself might be there, but it would be as if it was a brand new game because it wasn't, it was just recreated the next time that you booted the game, or it might've just been there as a placeholder, but your game itself wasn't saved. So you have to hold down reset or go back to the main menu. And that's what copies the save file down. Now you said that the save file stopped working and you hadn't had issues with any other games. So it sounds to me like you're already doing that. So this could be a freak occurrence where you held reset to go back to the menu and then turned off the power too quickly as it was still saving or something and got the file corrupted. That would have to be some really bad luck, though. I mean, you're talking about that would have to happen within milliseconds of the right moment to do that. So I I don't really know what's going on here, but it's not something that's very common at all. Um, and it stinks that that happened to you. The only other thing I could think of is if it was something like you backed up your save folder, which seemed to be working fine. You're already pr uh, progressing through Earthbound. And then you formatted your SD card, loaded a new ROM set on, and then restored your saves. But the file for the uh, the new version of Earthbound is slightly different. The file name, I'm sorry, is slightly different than the name of the save file. And that would certainly do that. But then you would end up with two save files in the folder. So the only other thing I would do is use that uh, the same ROM and the same save file and open it up in an emulator to see if it appears there. But this sounds like just kind of a freak occurrence that could happen. And the one good thing about the FX pack and all ROM carts is that going back to the menu or on older EverDrives, you have to uh, actually load a separate game. So like if you're playing Earthbound, go back to the menu and then load F0 or something, and then the save file copies. But regardless of how you get there, you could then back that up. So if you're 40 hours into a game, you could save that save file onto your computer. And then if this happens, it stinks. You might lose five hours, but it's better than losing 40 hours. But as far as working on a repro versus a ROM cart, there's still things to worry about with repros as well, even really well done repros. So as far as 100% guaranteeing your save file isn't going to be lost, 
There's no real way to do that. So uh, I would actually stick with the FX Pack Pro and back your back up your save files on a regular basis. And that would probably be a little bit more stable. But it was just my thoughts on it. You know, you're certainly welcome to go grab a, a repro and, and hope that you have less issues. But it's not a very common occurrence. Uh, and if anybody has any other thoughts or any other stories about their FX Pack doing that, maybe we can get this fixed. Maybe it's a bug. But I just think it's a freak occurrence or something else is at play that you you just didn't realize. And I don't mean that as an insult. I mean, it could happen to anybody. But it just could be one of those things that you didn't realize it happened until it happened. One more from Scotter. They said that the last console left on their list to purchase is a Sega Saturn, but they're a bit pricey. They've noticed the Japanese versions on eBay seem to be a little bit cheaper. If they plan on installing an optical drive emulator, do they also have to install a frequency mod like you would with a PAL version? Um, and the answer to that is no, because Jap uh, Japanese consoles run in NTSC at 60 hertz. I think the nickname for it is NTSC-J, but generally, it should be the same thing. Uh, and in fact, most consoles could be uh, most consoles of that era. You could just use the cartridges without really any worry to them. Um, you know, any of the cartridge tray mods for the Super Nintendo or N64 do that. It's just a physical protection for you know, keeping games in their region. But the consoles themselves even read it and they all run at 60 hertz. So that's not something you would have to worry about. However, you might have to worry about power depending on the version. So Japanese power is very close to US power, and you mentioned North America, so I'm assuming that's where you are and where you're looking to play these. So you might need to get a step-down converter, you might need to get an internal mod for the Saturn, like one of those uh, Pico PSU type of things, or you might luck out, open up the Saturn and find that it's a power supply that could also be uh, compatible with US power. But that's one of those things where, you know, now you start talking about modding and adding stuff that the console might not need at all. And if it was something where you were like, yeah, I wanted to recap the entire Saturn, I wanted to, you know, make sure that every single bit of it is in as good condition as possible, I wanted to look into replacing the power supply, you know, for whatever reason, then sure, go ahead and do all that. But if you're just looking to play some games with an ODE, I would, I would just say get the North American versions of it. So you don't even have to worry about power at all. Um, yeah, I just it's one of those things where, even if you plug it in and it works, power could also be a slow killer. So if you have a PSU that's not designed to run on US power, it'll probably work and it probably won't even have glitches, but it could potentially lower the lifespan at the very least of the internal power supply. Maybe the console, if the, uh, if the input voltage affects the output voltage at all, but it's just not a risk I would take. I'm paranoid with power, rightfully so. That paranoia comes from experience, by the way, but I'm I'm paranoid about power stuff. So, you know, I always lean towards the side of caution when talking about those things. You could plug it in and use it for the next 20 years and never have an issue, but I wouldn't. And, you know, just my opinion. Moving over to Floatplane, Retro Sean wanted to chime in about the Dolby ProLogic and ProLogic 2 conversation we were having. And Sean said it's important to remember that the signal is matrix encoded into the stereo signal itself. 
it's quite different from how Dolby Digital works. They've never used a sound system that automatically detects the ProLogic matrix. So that kind of reflects what I was saying before about how I vaguely remember you have to go to the, um, the receiver itself and enable the surround sound for surround channels encoded in the 2.0 stereo channels. So thanks for backing me up on that one, Sean. I, I really didn't remember, and I, I'm glad that uh, that you did. Uh, also, ProLogic 2 can create a simulated surround sound field from a regular stereo signal with no embedded matrix. I also remember that, and I also remember that was very hit or miss. Um, now, once again, this, I'm talking strictly from memory 20 years ago, so I don't know how solid this is. My memory is usually pretty sharp, but this is a long time ago I'm remembering this stuff from. But I, I definitely don't think that you could expect, and not that you were saying that, Sean, but I definitely just want to curb people's expectations that you can't just plug in a stereo game, turn on the ProLogic 2, and expect to feel like you're in a 5.1 surround sound game. Um also, going from analog to digital doesn't seem to lose the matrix signal, which makes sense because you could have Dolby ProLogic and the CD audio track. The matrix is part of the audio waveform. So that should clarify for people that were wondering about, will that sound go through an HDMI mod for the console? And it seems to be yes, it's just the same thing. You would have to manually enable ProLogic 2 on your receiver. So... Um, I don't really, I guess I have one receiver here I could try to test that out on. Um, but I don't, that'll take me a bit to figure it out. But I, I should be able to eventually hook something up where I can go direct via analog, uh, you know, just left and right stereo audio, as well as through the RetroTank 5X, as well as a digital audio mod to see if I could compare all that stuff. But I'm not going to have time for that for a while. So if anybody out there wants to make a video demoing it, by all means, do it up and I'll, uh, you know, I'll write it up for you. But uh, thanks for chiming in on that, Sean. Retro Sean also wanted to chime in regarding HDMI chipsets and why you could have a panel that accepts 4K60 over DisplayPort, but only 4K30 over HDMI. And it looks like my explanation last week was accurate, but Retro Sean just had a better way of saying it. Basically, the difference between things like HDMI 1.4, 2.0, or 2.1 comes down to the data bandwidth that those chipsets allow. So it's not just about security and standards and, you know, putting a stamp on what each of these mean. All of the chipsets are, are designed and shipped to only handle the max that that standard allows. So in most cases, especially with things like TVs, monitors, you know, basic Blu-ray players, whatever it's locked to is what it will be forever, and you won't be able to upgrade it. And of course, there's a pricing difference and availability difference, which is why you might have something like a monitor from a few years ago that could do 4K60 over DisplayPort, but not over HDMI. So thanks for the better explanation, but it still just comes down to that the chipset itself, uh, it could be the limiting factor for a bunch of different reasons. So always double check when you're buying a display or a device that it's compatible with what you need for your setup. QXC4 wanted to know if there are any known issues when playing PlayStation 1 games on the PlayStation 2 with the output set to component video as opposed to RGB. And I have never really heard of that. Or maybe if I did, I heard it in a different context. Um, there's definitely some issues with PS1 games running on certain models of the PS2. So it could be that, yes, that is an issue, but only with 
game X on model one, two, three, four, and not as a whole. Generally speaking, I've had really good results just playing PlayStation 1 games through the component out of a PlayStation 2. And I, I vaguely remember even light gun games working without a problem. So um, although I haven't done that in a long time, so maybe I'm, I'm misremembering. It's a good chance that uh, that I am, but I, I'm I'm... I distinctly remember testing this in the office I had back in Brooklyn for a while. So uh, I'm pretty sure as a whole it's fine. But you mentioned that Ridge Racer 4 on your PS2 Slim, the background is mostly bright yellow with black elements, and the issue manifests manifests as a white shadow on some of those elements. So if you're saying it's doing that in component video but not RGB, it could be a bunch of different things depending on your display your processor your cables if it's unshielded junky cables that alone could be the cause of the issue and you you might just only be seeing it manifest on this one game but i certainly know or or interested to hear if anybody else has had any other issues with this because generally speaking i've had good experience with uh, ps1 on ps2 via component video i do predominantly play through rgb though so Uh, If anybody else out there has these issues, let me know, but uh, I'm kind of interested to see what this is, and there's a chance it could just be one of those very specific bugs of, you know, game on this exact model PS2 with this scenario. QXC4 also wanted to chime in about using PCs with MAME on a CRT, and they said that they used CRT MU driver on a compatible video card with Groovy MAME, which allows you to run the games in the original resolution and possibly even the original refresh rate, uh, depending on your settings and stuff like that. So that is a good way to go about doing it. But the last time I used that method, um, CRT MU driver could only change the resolution after the PC booted. So that means if you turned on your PC after your arcade machine or your monitor was on, it would send it a 480p or 640 by 480 Visa signal as it was going through post. And then after your OS boots, it would switch to a 15 kilohertz signal. So the only reason I don't recommend that as a general solution is because you would have to be very careful of making sure that you turn on your PC first then turn on your monitor, and then it should be fine. And to be honest, doing that a couple of times absolutely isn't going to kill your monitor, but if you did that every single time you boot it up, it could kill your monitor or or TV a lot faster than if you just used it like a normal TV would. So that is a good solution, and that if you know what you're doing, that's something that it's worth hunting down. But using an arcade VGA card or a downscaler will always only send a 15 kilohertz signal to your monitor. So, or, you know, assuming you're using both of those things correctly, of course, but uh, it's not something you'd have to worry about, like during boot or, or, you know, changing resolutions or anything like that. So good thought. Um, And it's something I should probably do a, you know, redo a section on, on how to work all that stuff. But, uh, you know, if you're a beginner, you just got to be careful of those little things. Not much over on Ko-Fi this week, or am I supposed to say coffee? Uh, I don't know. It's that new platform that I don't have much experience with, but seems pretty cool. Uh, David McKenna just wanted to chime in to say they're happy that this is another option, and that's exactly the feedback I'm looking at, looking for. You know, is it confusing? Is it annoying? Or is another option good? Is there a better option for you? I mean this with love and respect. I really don't care what you use. I'm just so grateful that people want to support at all. So I'll keep. Uh, I'll keep coffee ko-fi up as as long as people want me to and we'll see how it works i've had 
good experiences with support services, and I've also had pretty bad experiences with support services. So I want to make sure to do what's right for everybody, but so far so good. So I'll keep checking this one out and feel free if you support that way to ask your questions there. Now over on Patreon, Yepo said they found a Trinitron CRT that they intend to use with an NES, and they seem to recall me saying something about Trinitrons and not agreeing with light guns, and respectfully, I think you're confusing two different things. Trinitron is just a branding that describes the Aperture Grill CRT mask. I guess that's the easiest way to describe it. But basically, it's why if you zoom in on a picture of a Trinitron versus another TV, it looks different. Like the little CRT mask and scan lines look a little different. And that's all the word Trinitron means is the type of tube technology that's being used. The only things that I ever talked about is flat glass versus curved glass. And there's so much misinformation out there. And there's misinformation from people that genuinely think they're doing the right thing, but they're mistaken. And as far as I know, in all of the years of testing and the hundreds of freaking CRTs that I've tested with, if you use a curved glass CRT, all light guns should work, assuming the gun itself is fine. These things are old, and I've seen light guns on the same exact curved C, you know, curved tube CRT. I've seen them work sometimes and not others, and that has nothing to do with the display. That's just, you know, the guns itself are old. But assuming those are working, all curved glass should be fine, and some flat glass are fine and some are not. And I think one very big point that people seem to misunderstand is if you shoot in the middle of the screen, it should work on everything. And I think that's a big misconception where people will have a flat glass CRT, you know, play duck hunt and shoot it for a couple ducks in the middle for a minute and go see it works fine, not realizing that as you get to the outer edges, that's where there could be an issue. Some flat panel, flat glass CRTs, not flat panel, sorry, some flat glass CRTs work fine. Others don't, uh, and others sometimes do and sometimes don't. So uh, if you have one of these and you, you know you got it, you already own it, just try it. Worst thing that could happen is your light gun gets inaccurate towards the edges or doesn't work at all towards the edges. But there's no safety issue, there's no problem, and there's certainly never any, you know, any reason not to use a type of CRT that's 15 kilohertz. There are some HD CRTs that don't work with retro games, but your basic TV, will, you'll never really have to worry about, should this work? You know, is this good or bad? Will this look better? You know, each, each CRT is going to be different, and there isn't a general rule for any of that other than flat glass CRTs might cause issues with light guns, depending. So hopefully I clarified that for you. Jace Bradford is a streamer trying to get the best quality output from their GameCube and specifically the Game Boy Player. Their current setup is SD video into a RetroTINK 5X used with an Elgato HD60, but they're considering getting a Carby. They also have HD RetroVision SNES cables, but they can't seem to get it to work. So there's a few things that you could do here. First of all, regarding the HD retrovision cables, those will only work on PAL GameCubes because NTSC GameCubes only output composite video and S-video from their multi-out, and PAL GameCubes only output composite video and RGB, not S-video. So that's why the HD retrovision SNES cables wouldn't work with that, because I'm assuming you have an NTSC one, otherwise it totally would work. 
Your current setup is good though. So if you have SD video via composite, you could always upgrade that to S video. And if you're specifically looking to play Game Boy Player, then that's gonna output 240p, a progressive scan signal. So running that into a RetroTINK 5X will get you a wide variety of choices of how you wanna display that signal and everything should work out totally fine. Now, here's the one factor that you should use to decide if you wanna to upgrade to a Carby or not. Do you play regular GameCube games and are the games that you play 480p compatible? Most are. But if that's the case and you could stream in a higher progressive scan resolution, then yes, it would be beneficial to pick up a Carby or a Prism. I like both of those. And I'll leave links to uh, Todd's uh, different spacers. I talked about that on the weekly roundup a while back, but all of those HDMI devices put a little bit of strain on the H or on the digital port. So Todd from Retrofrog built a little brace to hold it in place. And that post that I wrote has all of the links to the correct braces, as well as the different um, plug and play HDMI solutions. But if you did want to also play GameCube games, that would be the way to do it. Uh, because now you get 480p out of it and you also are able to get 240p or 480p out of the Game Boy Player, the only thing would be how do you scale it afterwards? So if you're outputting 480p from or, or 240p from HDMI into an Elgato HD60, you could use your streaming software to upscale any way you'd like, but how are you gaming? So are you putting that through a flat panel monitor so that you know you could basically put an HDMI splitter on the output? So in your current setup, you'd take the output of the Tink 5X and split that. Um, you know, if if that's the case, then you would probably benefit just by using the Retro Tink 5X and trying to get a different solution into it to let it do the scaling. And believe it or not, the most inexpensive solution to do that would be to get the Prism or the Carby and then also get an HDMI to component video converter. It seems a little convoluted because, you know, the original component video cables exist. It's just way cheaper that way. And you could decide where you want to split the signal, how you want to route it, etc. So if you wanted a very clean, full digital signal, you would put your HDMI splitter after the Carby, send one to your Elgato HD60, use your software to scale it, and then send the other HDMI output into the HDMI to component video converter into your RetroTINK 5X into your monitor. So there's a lot of choices there, but I think it really comes down to are you predominantly using the Game Boy Player or are you mostly going to be playing GameCube games? And if your focus really is the Game Boy Player, just upgrade to an S-Video cable and you should be totally fine. There's a bunch of decently priced ones out there. I have it linked, um, but I'll leave a link to the wherever section has them. I think I must have put it in the N64 section, but that would totally work on the GameCube. So check that out. And then also, if you want to check out the Carbies and uh, the just a cheap DAC to get you from HDMI to component. So it is probably a little more complicated an answer than you expected. But anytime you have a console that supports multiple progressive scan resolutions, you're going to run into this exact same issue. Bradley wants to know what is the current situation with Game Gear screen mods? Is the McWill still the best option or are there other options available? Yeah, I think there's a bunch of options available and some are almost identical to the McWill, some are slightly different, but I will defer this question to Tito from Macho Nacho Productions because he's completely on top of this. He's done install videos on a bunch of them. So if you were serious about trying to get whichever is the best screen for your Game Gear, 
Um, you know, you could check out the write-up on RetroRGB I did years ago about the McWill mod. All of that's actually still current. But I would also really suggest checking out Tito's channel and just scrolling through and clicking on the Game Gear screen mod videos and check all the different features and stuff. Uh, Tito has all the timestamps in there, so you could skip each one to, like, features and overview and kind of pick which one you think is best for you. I don't know if there's one that I would call the best. I think they're all good, but I don't think there's been one, holy crap, this is the best one ever mod available yet. None of them are bad, though, but I don't think there's one super-duper good one that everybody needs to run out and switch theirs to. But there are good ones, so I would definitely check that out and uh, and kind of see what you think from Tito's videos. Scanline City wanted to know what's my experience and opinion on the HD Fury devices. They have the HD Fury 2, 3, and 4, and they all seem to do a good job with any signal they throw at them, and they're also zero lag as long as you don't use them as scalers, you just use them as HDMI uh, manipulating devices. And Scanline City also wants to know if there's any real advantage to these over the alternatives. And my opinion is I like them if, and I would recommend them if you know what you're getting into. Some of the more complicated ones to use are just amazing devices that give you total control over the HDMI signal and they constantly need to be messed with. So in the scenario of I want to split the signal and not worry about my capture card being compatible, I would absolutely recommend those two cheap splitters that I did a write-up on over the HD Furies any day of the week because they're cheap. So if they don't really work for your scenario, you still have a tool that you could leave in your toolbox that I'm sure you'll use at another point. But they have EDID um, mapping. They have different downscaling options for capture cards. You know, those are definitely the ones I would go for if you're looking for just a basic solution that you configure once and never think about again. The HD Furies are ones that I would recommend if you need specific control and you want to do... Uh, you want to use them for other reasons. And I believe there's a brand new one that just came out that can handle up to 8K even... And, and with all of these other crazy options that they have with it. So my my opinion is they're awesome if you know what you're getting into, you know, and it's, it's kind of like anything else, right? Uh, to use a video game analogy, if you love arcade racers and you go play like a real driving sim, you're not going to like it, even though it's probably an amazing game that other people who want driving sims like, you're not going to like it. And it's the same thing with these. If you want a full-featured, crazy device that could do everything, get their more complicated, expensive ones. If you want one that you could still change some features and have more control, you can get their less expensive ones, which are still 10 times the price of the stuff that I just reviewed after that. But if you just want something that splits your signal or, or you know, does one or two of the things that you need... I would look at the other cheap ones. So I'll leave links to the stream I did, which is really long. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend watching it unless you were bored or were really curious on the interface and my experience with it. But I think what I just summed up probably sums up the entire live stream. Voltar jumped in there. It was kind of fun. We just made fun of each other and tried to play with the, the HD Fury. But generally speaking, my summary of that is probably the whole live stream. And I'll also leave a link to the splitter write-up I did, uh, which hopefully would be a good solution for most people because you just set it and forget it in most cases. Lopo just picked up a copy of Zelda Oracle of Ages for the Game Boy Color, or I guess Game Boy Advance if you play it that way, and said that it won't let them start a new file. When they looked up online to see how they could fix it, the only info they got was either they need to replace the batteries or the cartridge could potentially have gotten damaged by using a Game Genie. So 
I don't think I've ever heard the Game Genie thing before. There's certainly cheat devices like that that don't have beveled edges that have damaged consoles. That's certainly a thing with Sega Saturns. However, as far as like ruining a save game file or, or corrupting it, I, I don't think I've ever heard of that before. And we're also talking about a game that's very old, and you're probably going to need to replace the battery on it anyway. So I would absolutely start by carefully opening it up, uh, cleaning it off with isopropyl, um, cleaning, same with all cartridges, you know, clean it with isopropyl and a Q-tip, so like high alcohol content alcohol, use the pencil eraser on it, a pink pencil eraser, and that gets all the gunk off of the different contacts. Clean it again with isopropyl and then visually see it. Make sure there's nothing rusted or rotted or chipped off. And if that's the case, replace the battery. Voltar has a, a video on it. I think My Life in Gaming did a video on it. So I would just kind of look those up and replace the battery and then go from there. The only things that you would want to stop is if you opened it up and the original battery was leaked out and started corroding things. And then you're going to want to probably look to pros for help, or if the cartridge pins themselves are all rusted and damaged, then you would want to not use that at all and be very careful with it because you could damage other equipment that you put it in. But it really just sounds like you need a new battery. So I would check out those videos and, and see if you're comfortable doing it yourself or if you'd want to hire somebody to do it for you. But as far as mods go, they're not the hardest. So it should be something that even a basic modder would be able to do. So even if you still don't want to do it yourself, it's not like a, a Ultra HDMI or a DC digital install where you really need a good modder. Like just a decent modder should be able to pull that off for you. I hope. <laughs> Marco Vizzini just got a Sony PVM-14L5, which is a very awesome multi-sync PVM monitor. And they said when playing Dreamcast, they find that they need to turn up the brightness for 480p by 10 on the uh, on-screen on display. And my experience is this normal. And to be specific, they're using a SCART cable that has the 480i, 480p switch on it. And it's dim when playing through 480p, but through that same cable... When you switch to 480i, it looks fine without the need for brightness. So that's a tough one to troubleshoot because you're going to need some other kind of cable to really go through and figure out what this is. Um, and in fact, in a perfect world, you would also borrow another Dreamcast just to verify. Now, there are some monitors that in their service menu, you could... Uh, you could have different settings for different resolutions. That's definitely the case for modern flat panels, but I don't think the 14L5 does that. I think they're just global settings. So my guess would be maybe it's the cable. Uh, so I would try a different cable or a different Dreamcast or both. Um, now, the good and bad news is it's very cheap to get a Dreamcast VGA cable. I think you could still find them for like $10, $15, but then you would need a sync combiner solution like the HD15 to SCART in order to get it into the 14L5. So if you already have one of those, yeah, absolutely pick up the cheap VGA cable and give that a shot. If you don't, um, you know, maybe you could try to borrow one. Maybe you have a friend set up. The 14L5 isn't so heavy, so you could certainly bring it over somebody's house if you know somebody that lives near you with a different setup. But you'd want to determine if it's the Dreamcast itself, or the cable, or the monitor. So you, you want to switch out all three of those things. I'm pretty sure it's not a case with every Dreamcast, because I probably would have noticed that in any of the testing I did. Now, I haven't ever specifically looked for it, but if you're saying you have to turn up the brightness by 10, 
I don't think that's something I would have missed. And I don't think that's something a lot of other people would have missed. So my gut's saying it's probably the cable, but it could also be your specific Dreamcast or it could be the monitor. So I would just try to find other ways to troubleshoot that to see, uh, to see if you could figure out exactly what's causing it. Oliver Clare just purchased a consoleized MVS from the Behar brothers and wanted to make sure that it was safe to use with SCART equipment, specifically the G-SCART switch and the RetroTank 5X. And I have not personally used their consoleized Neo Geo MVS, but I have tested their Shogun Supergun. And the Shogun is a Supergun designed specifically for use with Neo Geo boards, and even more specifically with the MV1B and C, which are the ones, the MV1C is the one I believe they're using in their consoleized uh, cases. So unless they changed the design drastically, which would make no sense, and I can't believe that they would do that, the answer is yes, it's perfectly safe to use. The version, original version of the Shogun I tested, um, it definitely had room for improvement, but there were no safety issues. You never had to worry about plugging it into a SCART device. So, you know, I just always want to be clear about this. I haven't tested the exact thing that you purchased, but I would absolutely have my mind blown if they somehow redid the circuit that was designed for Neo Geo for the Neo Geo. <laughs> so I think it's a pretty safe assumption that what they're using in there is either the original Shogun circuit or the one based off their newer Shogun, which has some tweaks and some improvements in it. So if that's the case, uh, either one should be totally fine. Um, you know, if you're really worried about that, you could try to send it to somebody with a scope just to double check. But I think both the audio and the video should be perfectly fine to use. And you don't have to worry about the problem that happened a few years ago where a certain brand Supergun blew up like five or six G-Scarts at an event. And then the person who made the Supergun has tried to blame everybody else. It's not what you have to worry about in this one. And if that does happen, it would be a complete freak occurrence because uh, Behar Brothers products have been pretty decent and they certainly haven't had major safety issues with them. So I'm pretty sure that you'd be nothing or that you have nothing to worry about hooking that up to your equipment. One more question from Oliver. They have a bunch of different SCART based devices that are all different cable types. So some are sync on C-Sync, some are sync on Luma. One is just composite video, but in a SCART head. And they want to know how that's going to affect a total setup when connecting it with a G-SCART switch and a RetroTINK 5X. And directly into the RetroTINK 5X, all will be fine as long as the cables were made properly. That's always the number one thing. The type of cable that you buy is so important because that will affect the signal and the voltage on the output side. So assuming you bought all good quality cables, the RetroTINK 5X will work fine with all of those things. You'll just have to switch the input when you're using composite video over SCART versus RGB. And the G-SCART switch will be safe to use with all of those as well. And the only question would be the one with sync on composite video. If that's the case, I believe if you're using any G-SCART made from 2019 or later, it should just pass that through no problem. Same thing though, you'll have to switch inputs on your RetroTank 5X to tell it that it's composite video and not RGB over SCART. But if you're using older ones, the old, old ones with the D sub connectors, you should just be able to put that into the slot closest to the output ports. And as long as no other console is on, it'll default to that and pass the signal through. But there was the model called G-SCART Switch Lite 
that was made for a while that won't, I don't know if it'll detect composite video synced through it. It should, but I don't remember ever trying it. So, but either way, it won't hurt anything. In the worst case scenario, you could get one of those adapters that breaks a composite over SCART out to, you know, RCA, or in your case, if you're using like an NES, you could just plug the RCA cable directly into the other ports of the RetroTank 5X and not have to worry about it. So the short answer to your question is you probably don't have to worry about any of this stuff in your setup, including the composite video ones. You just got to remember when you switch between signals, you have to switch inputs. Same as a monitor, same as everything except like a PAL CRT, which sometimes can auto detect the difference. Um, the only other thing you mentioned is that you had an N64 that had a built-in sync separator. There's absolutely no need for that unless... I mean, there's really no need for that. I can think of one or two very specific scenarios that I could almost guarantee don't apply to you based on your previous questions and uh, uh, how you've described in this setup what you'll be using. So if you got one of those, you should definitely just remove that. And it, you could use sync on composite video, sync on Luma, or or C-Sync, depending on the model N64. Uh, some models had C-Sync already run. Some could jump over to it. But in your setup, it doesn't really matter. So I would get sync on Luma, sync on composite, and not worry about anything else and just kind of use it that way. So that's kind of an aside in that when you're using more modern retro equipment like the G-SCART switch and the RetroTank 5X, all of these weird things that we did 10 years ago just to make it work are not necessary because there's a much, much more deeper understanding of the signals that the consoles output, why they output them, and what we need to make those work. So those Band-Aid solutions are, are useless and then sometimes could cause harm. So definitely don't use cables with sync strippers in them uh, unless you're a very specific scenario. And the only one, the only common one like that is using Extron cross points with PlayStation 1 and 2 because those don't output C-Sync, but the cross points require it. So you would need some kind of sync stripping solution. Or if you're going direct from a con one of those consoles into a monitor that only accepts TTL level sync, but those are pretty specific scenarios that don't seem to apply to you. So just wanted to mention, don't worry about uh, strippers and cables. And I did that video last year that goes into much more depth about it if you want to know why and, and what and all that stuff. So I'll leave a link to that video just uh, for reference if you're curious. Richard Webster wants to know if HD Retrovision component cables through the RetroTank Comp to RGB transcoder through an Extron crosspoint into their TV would give them the same quality as if they used native RGB SCART output from those consoles into the crosspoint into their TV. And the short answer is yes, as long as you're using good cables. So if you're using HD Retrovision PS2 cables into the comp to RGB, yep, that's totally going to be a good solution, but you'd have to make sure that the SCART to BNC output cable is also shielded in good quality. And same if you're doing something like uh, you have those component video consoles going through a G-Comp switch, and then the G-Comp going into the comp to RGB, you'd have to make sure those component video cables are also good. Other, otherwise, the worst thing in the signal chain is going to be what determines how the signal looks. So if you have everything shielded and perfect, but one really crappy SCART to BNC cable, that's going to be as if you used unshielded cables the whole way down. And, you know, of course, anything that you put in line 
with an analog video signal will lower the quality. Now, most of it will lower it so imperceptibly that you need a scope or to zoom in a thousand times on a perfect capture in order to tell the difference, but it's still something I wanted to mention. And cross points will handle component video and RGB. So my, my uh, you know, evolved answer to your question, you know, evolving as I'm discussing this and visualizing your setup in my head would be if that's going to be the easiest workflow for you. Sure, do that and you don't have a quality issue to worry about. But overall, if you could route everything through the cross point and then get your cross point into the TV, and if it's something like a PVM or a BVM, you could just toggle a switch between component and RGB. If your TV only accepts RGB inputs, um, then you might need to figure out multiple ways of doing this, and I could understand how that would get complicated. So I would really take a step back and look at your whole workflow setup and see what you could do. And if you are going into a PVM, I would kind of just route everything through the cross point, and the only thing you'd have to do is set your input on the cross point and then set your signal on your PVM, and that's it. Um, but if you are using a setup that it would be much easier if everything was just RGB through the input, then that should be totally fine. I just wanted to cover all bases so that, uh, you know, you don't end up spending money that you wouldn't have to. A couple of questions from Quantum Guitar, and I'll answer the easier one first. Uh, they have a Panasonic Plasma that they absolutely love, but they're having trouble uh, taking photos or videos of it with their iPhone. And yeah, I mean photographing any display is a giant pain. It's often hit or miss. And what I would suggest first before you do anything else is download a free manual photo app. I, I, there's got to be a, a free version left, or if not, I'm pretty positive there's ones with trial versions or something like that. So just pick your day, set at least an hour aside, download the app and start messing with manual settings. Uh, set white balance. Um, there's these things. Actually, I could probably leave a link to this. Uh, they're very, very cheap. You just kind of hold them up in front of the camera, and uh, that's how you calibrate white balance, is aiming to the middle of that. I think anything 18% gray you could use. I think there's there's tons of stuff. I've seen 18% gray Bic lighters and stuff like that. So calibrate the colors manually, and then try the manual settings and see if that works. And if it doesn't, you're probably going to have to upgrade to some more pro equipment. But know that this is a rabbit hole and a crazy one. I've spent a ridiculous amount of time and money on my setup, and while I could get great still pictures of CRTs, where you see a lot of awesome data, you know, you could really zoom in, and it looks it looks like I spent more on my equipment than I did for still pictures, video is still a nightmare, and I've never found a solid way to solve the issue, so keep that in mind. Uh, but basically, start with a free solution and go from there, but have realistic expectations. On the flip side, they said that they're really looking forward to the new wiki and specifically looking forward to an expanded version of the N64 GameShark code spreadsheets, um, mostly for the anti-aliasing codes, but also for forcing anamorphic widescreen modes. Now, there's a lot to talk about with the new wiki. Uh, I'll save that for its own special thing. But what I definitely wanted to bring up here is this is a perfect example. And I, I swear, Quantum Guitar, I'm not picking on you. I am just using this as an example, and it hopefully comes out as positive as I mean it. But saying things like, you should have a GameShark code section under the N64, or probably under every console for list of cheat codes to archive it, that's a great idea. And that's something I want to see. 
But one of the biggest hurdles in getting the wiki up is getting people on board to do things like this. Because respectfully, if somebody were to say, hey, that's a good idea, we'll add it to a list and maybe it'll get done. Or worse, if somebody says, here's a zip file with every Game Shark code ever, maybe we'd get to it. But it would require somebody that understands what they are, why somebody would want to use them, how you'd want to organize them, not just dump them in alphabetically, but exactly as you specified, put them under the categories of anti-aliasing removal, uh, widescreen forcing, you know, infinite lives, whatever you want to do, make them sortable and all that stuff. So what would be awesome is if you or somebody you knew wanted to be the N64 Game Shark person and would, would step up and say, okay, you know, once the wiki opens for beta, I'll ask for a, a you know an account to do this stuff. And the people who have already started this should always, I mean, I imagine they would all be willing to help for things like I could send you, <coughs> excuse me, I could send you all of the Game Shark codes that I have archived. I could send you links to the archived versions of the ones that were up on Assembler Games and then have somebody just take ownership of that and make sure it's all categorized and up there correctly. So once again, I'm not picking on you. I'm not, you know, I'm happy that you're enthusiastic about it, but if you or anybody else wants to um, offer to step up and do those things, that would be even better. So uh, as soon as the wiki is up and running, contact me. I could put you in touch with the right people. We'll get you an account and, you know, we'll get everything squared away so that you could make this stuff happen. Now, I'm not telling you to do that. Maybe you're a very busy person that just wanted to give a polite suggestion. And now I'm using that to go on a rant here. I apologize if that's the case. But what we're really looking forward or what we're really looking for are both the suggestions and people that would be willing to take ownership of it. And multiple people would even be best because I just I want this to be something that is not about any one person and lives beyond all of us. So it would be terrible if like the N64 anti-alias encode person one day just said, I'm bored with this, I'm done, walked away, and it never got updated again. So if there were two or three people who were contributing to that and always talking to other people about it, you know, welcoming new people in, that's how you get these things to last forever. So didn't mean this to turn into a wiki ramp, but I really hope it came out positive because I meant it that way. It just, I got to, put it into perspective of what it's like to be on the other side when you have just thousands of data coming at you at once where you need to try to throw it into place. I'm also going to need people to help out taking everything that's a guide off of RetroRGB and putting it on the wiki in the new format. So stay tuned. We'll get more info on this, but hopefully people would be willing to, to step up for that. Last week, Hugo Castro had a question about how to game on a VGA CRT monitor while also recording on a VCR. And I walked through a couple of different scenarios, but I wasn't sure of every piece of the puzzle. And to summarize Hugo's question, which I did read every word, but I'm not going to reread it just in respect to people's time. But the full setup are all of the consoles like Dreamcast and GameCube being played in their native 480p resolution with the higher quality outputs. And with uh, consoles like the Saturn, being run in 240p, or I guess 480i for those games, needing to be doubled, and then things like the PlayStation 2 as well, and whatever resolutions they have. So in order to, to do what you're looking to accomplish, I think what you're going to need uh, that would be the cheapest would be an open source scan converter and some cheap and basic HDMI equipment. And there's one problem 
and I'll, I'll go over that in a second. So if you have an open source scan converter and you create custom profiles for all of these consoles, you can get everything centered. You can make sure it fills the screen properly. You'd of course have to set it to 480p output to do this, um, but you could get everything set up where you don't have to worry about black bars on any part of the screen within reason. I mean, if you use a, a Sega Master System, that's just the way the games were, even on an original TV. But not it's not your concern of maybe the Dreamcast is more narrow than the GameCube type of thing. You could set all of that stuff up, and you could play in essentially zero lag on your VGA CRT monitor. And then you could do that by going from the open source scan converter to an HDMI splitter. Have one output go to just a cheap DAC, HDMI to VGA, so you're all set there. And now the easy way to do on a, the other side on a VHS player would be an HDMI to composite video converter. And here's the problem. So they're cheap and they're very laggy, but doesn't really matter in this scenario because you're just using it to record, not to game. So lag isn't a factor but I'm pretty positive it takes 480p and downscales it to 480i. And if you're playing stuff like Dreamcast, GameCube, and uh, PlayStation 2 especially, then in some Saturn games, that's not really going to matter because to your point, in the late 90s, everybody would have been seeing that content in 480i anyway, no matter what regardless if the console supported a higher resolution. Even in the early 2000s, the, most of the people watching were probably watching on a standard TV. The only issue would be 240p Saturn games would look a little off. They would look like 480i. So if that's a problem, you're going to have to think of an alternate solution. If it's not a problem, you should be fine. The alternate solution, though, would also apply if you want to edit this footage. So another solution would be that you take all of the stuff and uh, use the HDMI splitter for, to go one into the DAC and then the other directly into a capture card and capture it all in 480p and then edit your footage as necessary and afterwards try to figure out how to get it in the proper resolution and how to output it to your VCR that way. So then you would want to be looking into either a downscaling solution that supports both resolutions or into some kind of uh, video output that could support both res resolutions, meaning 480p and 15 kilohertz. And then you would be able to just convert them to 480i or convert it to 480p using any video editing software. You'd have to tweak it to make sure it drops the correct frames and stuff like that. But then you would be able to edit it, get it in its original original resolution, and go from there. Uh, but that's a lot more complicated, and I would really only do that if you were if you wanted to make sure that Saturn was recorded and you know in the exact way that it was presented, or if you needed to edit the footage. So that's going to be a lot more work than just hitting record on your VCR and starting to play your game. But if you wanted to do more of an editing scenario or more, have more control of the video, or if you wanted to add a lot more consoles that were 240p only, that's kind of how you would have to pull that off. Um, so if you need more questions about that, I could look into it. But I have a feeling just scenario number one should be whatever you need. Uh, you mentioned links to Amazon in the UK. Uh, I don't really have links to that. I have my Amazon list that goes to the US one. I don't know 
Uh, I don't know if it's the same product, so I would just kind of reference my page and then search for the same things. And as for the HDMI to composite video converter, buy the cheapest one Amazon has and hope that it works. Uh, and once again, I just want to be very clear that I do not recommend those for gaming, but that's not what you're doing. So I know you know that, Hugo, but for anybody else that's listening, I would not say grab this converter and start playing. It's only for the scenario in which you're talking about or some pretty cool display scenarios. I know people that have wanted to play back footage on a CRT, so that might work, but it is composite, not component. So you get that side of it, but I think that's the right answer for you. But please let me know if you have any more questions. Jake Raymond wants to know what would happen if you took one of those RGB to S-Video converters and routed them through a VCR that had both S-Video and composite out. And that's an excellent question that I don't know the answer to. Respectfully, Jake, I think you may have been confusing two things in that. Um, so your question was specifically, will it solve the light gun issue? And there is no light gun issue. You could absolutely use light guns on a TV that only has S-Video inputs using an RGB to S-Video converter. I showed that in a, a quick video and write-up I did a while back. That's totally fine. But the problem is going from RGB to composite video. And that hasn't really worked right in any scenario that I've tried. So that's a good question. I actually used to have one of those JVC decks, you know, maybe early to mid 2000s that had S-Video composite and RF inputs and outputs. So if anybody has one of those, uh, in fact, if anybody is selling one, I guess I could use one for my collection. I have two, three VCRs here that I've never actually used. I think I used one of them for like two minutes just to try something. Uh, but something like that would be good for testing. So if anybody has the ability to test this or wants to sell me one cheap, I would, I would certainly love to try it out. Uh, and in, in fact, if you have one that, you know, eats tapes and is broken, but uh, but everything else still works, I'd love to have one of those because that way you don't lose any money selling me something cheap that you could have used or sold for more. And I get to take something that would be normally useless and, and use it for testing and stuff. So I would love to to figure out if that works. And I'd also love to see if it does work, what are the chips that are in there? Can I find them pulled from older stuff? Can I make a device out of this? So that's an excellent question. Uh, and I would love to know the answer and I would love anybody's help on that. But as far as light guns, that's not a problem at all. It's just a matter of getting from RGB to composite video. So I'll, I'll leave a link to the post for anybody interested. And once again, anybody has one of those VCRs, I would certainly be interested in it just to see what it could do. Couple of questions from Mark Main. First, did Mike Chi stop producing RetroTink M units, or is it just the issue with the chip shortage? Uh, I don't know for sure. You might want to ask him about that, but my guess is that one contributed to the other plus RetroTink 5X. So I think with the chip shortage, if Mike was going to bend over backwards to try to figure out what he needed to keep his products going, I'm not going to speak for Mike, but I will say that if I were in his position, I would keep the RetroTank Mini and the RetroTank 5X in stock and anything else, if possible, sure, but those would be the two that I focused all of my efforts on. Once again, that's just speculation and a guess. I'm not Mike. I, I don't want to speak for him, but I just think that's also a kind of a fair analysis of the situation. Global part shortage that is an, at an unprecedented level is something that's going to affect everybody's products. And you got to just make decisions that are based on what's best for you and what's best for everybody else. So that would be my guess. But 
definitely want to talk to Mike directly for that. And also, while the Tink M was a, a great unit, and it was kind of required in order to get to the Retro Tink 5X today, with both being available, you know, assuming the M comes back available, I would say save your money and go the 5X route no matter what, because it's just so much more options. And compared to the other Tink versions, there's other versions that I would say, if you're looking for more affordable, you know, cut some corners and, and go there or save up and go to the five. Whereas the Tink M does have some very specific, awesome uses, but unless you really need it for that very specific use, then I would say save up for the five X all my opinions though. So none of that was fact, <laughs> just, just word vomiting my thoughts on that. Uh, also, they just got a Sega Menacer, and it's pulling to the bottom right and jiggles around a lot. The IR is hooked up, and they're using it on a PVM. Do I know where I should start to try to fix it? No. Uh, and if anybody is an expert on repairing light guns, you know that's something that I would love to see somebody take over that section of the wiki. Even if it's just a Menacer expert, you know, a light phaser expert, a zapper expert, whatever else, I would love that info out there with instructions on how to open them, how to repair them, what to look for, common issues. Because I personally would love to know why some of my light phasers sometimes work and sometimes don't. I've opened them up, I've cleaned them, I've made sure there's no loose connections, because that's an obvious one. If you have a, a cold solder joint and a, a wire sometimes popping off, that's an easy explanation. I couldn't find any of that. So uh, I'd love to know the answers to all those things, but we're going to have to defer to people who are experts in these, in these little niche things that we work on to help us out with that. So fingers crossed somebody would have the answer. A couple of questions from Jason Guffey. I'm going to read them in reverse order here. Do I have any tips on getting started with a lower end projector? Are they better off looking for a cheap used one locally or buying one in Best Buy for a sale or something? Do I have any idea how well a cheaper one would work outdoors? They've watched the My Life in Gaming video on them, but that's their only experience. So I would absolutely look up projectors based on your very specific needs. So the, uh, I guess the best way to describe it is to talk about what I went through on, uh, and just kind of apply that to your own search. But I wanted a projector that first could be ceiling mounted, that could also accept 3D video signals, because I, I still like 3D movies, and that was low enough lag for gaming. And the brightness didn't matter too much to me because I'd be working on things indoors, but I did want something that was known to be of good quality. You know, not like one of those tiny little cell phone projectors. I wanted to be able to say, you know, to go from watching a TV show on my OLED to watching a movie on this without hating it. So, you know, obviously an OLED TV is always going to be much clearer than a projector, but it's also a different look and feel. Same way a flat panel versus a CRT is a different look and feel. So I just wanted something that was good enough quality. Now, unfortunately for me, the one thing that I did not realize I needed until after I already purchased one was I needed it to be a short throw projector. Not an ultra short throw, but just one that could project a 100 inch screen within four or five feet. And the way that this office is kind of set up, there's a beam going across the middle that it has to be on the opposite side. So I ended up with an awesome projector that I love that has to sit on a table and kind of, you know, prevents enough people from sitting on the couch. So that was definitely my mistake. And don't make that mistake for yourself. Research all of the factors that you need. Try not to forget about them. And, you know, it, the, the major factor for me was I bought it right before I moved, before I was able to measure out the room. So that if I had already lived here, I would have known and I wouldn't have had that. 
The only other thing too is because I bought a used projector, I also bought a bulb that goes along with it. The bulb that's built into mine is absolutely perfect. Um, but if there's ever a problem, now I know I could just swap the bulb out and don't have to worry because that's the number one thing that wears out on projectors. So if you buy a cheap used one, make sure you try to buy a bulb or at least determine the exact bulb needed should you ever need to replace it. If you buy a new one, you don't have to worry about that, but check out specs. Uh, next question, they've become something of a CRT hoarder in recent months, like a bunch of us, but they're hurting a bit for money now that it's holiday season. How do they think they should go about selling some of the ones they don't really need anymore without coming across like a jackass? Mainly 15 inch consumer sets or 15 kilohertz consumer sets and lower end VG, VGA monitors. Should I even ask for money for them at all or just list them for free? So this is just an opinion, you know. Do whatever you feel right. This is just my own stupid opinion. But I do strongly think that if you've put work into these, and by work, if you've plugged them in, you've tested the inputs, you make sure that there's no discoloration on the sides, even you don't have to open it up. You don't even have to open a service menu or menu or anything like that. If you've powered all of these on and you're sure that they're in decent condition, then it's, I mean, I would feel zero guilt selling it for money. I'd feel like an asshole if I found something off the side of the road that's a basic consumer grade TV and tried to sell it for $1,000, but pick a reasonable price for it. And I think that, you know, I think any level-headed human would agree that, you know, asking for 50 or 100 bucks, depending on how big or how good the monitor is, is a totally fair thing because you've put your, you've put the work in that somebody would have had to anyway. And I think a lot of scenarios, especially with me, is, you know, I've gotten in a car and driven out to places, picked up a monitor, carried this giant heavy thing, you know, maybe scuffed the seat in my car trying to get it in, got it home, plugged it in, and it didn't do what I wanted it to do. That, that to me, like I would have, you know, I paid for all those monitors too. Even if I got them for free, I would have rather paid to know what I was getting into than to waste all of that time and all of that effort going to get them. So I would absolutely charge for them. And I would just post in places where there's, you know, there's level-headed people. You could post on Craigslist, but based on where you're located, you could get many different uh, options and many different responses. But uh, you could also check out different places like different forums and stuff like that, or different discords where, where, you know, good level-headed people hang out that would be able to say things like, yeah, this is a good choice. That's a good choice. I'll pay you this, you know, proper bargaining, not, not scumbagging, but I'll stop ranting about that. I just, you know, I never mind paying for people's time. I just, you know, I, I always want to feel like I'm not ripping anybody off and I never want to feel like I'm getting ripped off. So maybe that's selfish. That's fine. I'll deal with it. Uh, and your last question, are a desoldering station and a hot air rework station the same thing? No, not at all. Good question though. Desoldering stations are usually things, uh, boxes with like a gun with a cord attached to it. Uh, connected to it and you clean out that gun and that gun looking thing is what you stick on the areas that you want to desolder. A hot air rework station looks very similar, but it's not a gun. It's like a wand and that blows out hot air that doesn't suck in the solder. Um, I have some here, which I'll show at the end of this because I'm going to have to mess with the focus on my camera. So I'll wait till the very end, but that's a good question. They both look similar. 
Um, it's just one basically sucks out the hot air through something that looks like a gun and the other one blows out hot air at different temperatures and different velocities based on the work that you're doing. And that's very important as well, by the way, make sure you've, if you're going to use a hot air rework station, it's set to the right temperature and it's blowing at the right speed. Otherwise you could do things like blow some of the surface mount components off the motherboard and how would you know where they all went if you didn't have another one next to you or, or if somebody hadn't categorized that. So that's always a nightmare with a hot air station. It's happened to me before, but luckily when I was using it on prototype stuff where I was like, all right, I really need to get this one expensive chip out. And then the whole rest of the board and components is like a dollar fifty, but this chip is, you know, 20 bucks. So yeah, I didn't really care when it happened on that one. I salvaged the chip. I did that right. But imagine if you did that on like the bottom of a console and you, you know, now you, how are you going to figure out where to get all that stuff back? That's, that'd be a lot of work. Uh, but just to show you the gray one is the hot air or is the, um, desoldering station. Let me get that focused. Oh, perfect. All right. So that is the hot air re or that is the desoldering station with the desoldering gun right there. And that next to it is the hot air rework station. And that's just got the wand that blows out the hot air. So there's links to it on the website, um, but hopefully that will get you started and kind of clarify the difference. Well, that's it for this time. If you're new to these Q&As, ask any question you'd like wherever it is that you support, but please post those questions in the latest Q&A support post. So if you wanted to ask a question for next week, wherever it is that you support, find this video and then post down below in those comments. And the way the services work, I can't really figure out what's a new question on an older support post. And I just like scrolling through in real time like I did here. It always seems to be a bit more fun doing it that way. So any question you got, that's where you ask. And if for whatever reason, Reason I miss a question, it is never intentional. It's always accidentally deleted in post or uh, Patreon. If a question is too long, they seem to be auto deleting them. Like it'll post and it'll show up there, but then it'll disappear. It's very weird. I don't know. But uh, anyway, thanks very much to everybody who participates and especially thank you to everybody who supports in any way possible because it is you who is keeping all of this stuff going. So thank you very much and I'll see you next week.